we've finally arrived. Happy Halloween. This is the Warning Woods Halloween Special 2022, The Exorcism of Ridgeville. This is the fifth and final chapter of a five-part mini-series. Be sure you've listened to the previous four parts before listening to this one. Without further ado, here is The Exorcism of Ridgeville, Part 5. The black dog was inspecting us from a rocky outcrop about halfway up the hill, maybe 200 feet from the ground. Isaac and I were too far away for me to actually see its eyes, but I could feel them. They were scanning us, threatening us, warning us to leave everything alone. Let things be. We couldn't just walk away. I know now as well as I knew then, but I can't tell you how badly I wanted to heed the black dog's warning. Well, I guess this is what we signed up for, I muttered as I shifted the car into gear. Patrick? Isaac sounded nervous. He had every right to be. I must have looked like a maniac staring up the hill through the windshield, leaning over the steering wheel like I was trying to keep it from floating away. I floored the gas and the car roared, then lurched over the curb. We rocked back and forth as we rumbled towards the base of the hill over pockmarked dirt. Patrick, you're going to get us both arrested, Isaac shouted over the bellowing engine. By who? I asked. The cops were all busy and besides, I figured Red would just get us out again. No one's following us up this hill, Pastor. I heard a siren wind up behind us. In the vibrating rear view, I watched a single police car spin in the dirt and start hustling in our direction. Here they come. Get ready to run, I shouted. What? Isaac looked pale. I wondered if this was the greatest sin he had ever committed. In different circumstances, I might have reminded him that we were working for a good cause, but there was no time for comforting words as we rushed the base of the hill. I slammed the brakes a few feet from the hill's craggy base. Go, I shouted, and gave Isaac a strong push. I left my door open as I stumbled out of the car and ran toward the hill. My pace synced up with the car's dinging, an obnoxious reminder to shut the door. That sound faded away and soon all I could hear were our footsteps and breaths and the rapidly approaching siren. Isaac and I climbed over the first batch of boulders and began the steep ascent through the thick pines that gave the hill its furry appearance at a distance. Up close, they were rough and harsh like wooden bullies. We used protruding roots as handles and footholds and managed to scale 50 feet or so before the pursuing cop got to my car. Stop climbing and come back down. You're under arrest the officer shouted as soon as he opened his door and got out. Sorry, officer, we can't do that, I shouted back. I heard him curse and mutter something unintelligible into his shoulder-mounted microphone. I hoped Red would hear whatever message the officer put out and either tell him to stand down or go to our aid. I heard something coming down toward us and made myself as flat as I could. My first thought was of a falling rock tumbling down the hill, but a black, panting blur brushed by instead. It was the dog. Surreal relief came over me as it bypassed both me and Isaac and ran all the way down. I looked back and saw the officer still had his head tilted down towards his radio. I tried to call out to him, but it was too late by then. 
He looked up right before the giant black dog launched itself off the rocks and landed with a heavy wump on top of him. His throaty death gurgles lasted only a few seconds before his body went limp. The dog turned its dripping, bloody muzzle up toward us when it was finished. The smeared gore gave the grotesque impression of a grinning clown. It stepped off the officer's body, giving us a full view of his bloodied corpse. It looked like he had been nearly decapitated by the animal's savage jaws. The dog had completely torn out his throat. I figured we were next. Climb, I shouted, but Isaac was already moving. I had a feeling the dog was a much more proficient climber than us, but going up was our only option. As I climbed, I searched for a rock or a stick to defend myself with when the creature inevitably caught us. I finally saw a stone I could use off to the side and stretched to reach it. My fingers had just wrapped around the stone when a gunshot rang out and made me retract my outstretched arm. Dirt rained down on top of my head. A second shot sounded, and this time I heard a zipping sound before the dirt two feet to the left of me exploded. I was being shot at. I stole one quick glance down the hill and nearly blacked out again. The officer was somehow standing, the black dog at his side. His head hung limply to the left by his unsupported spine. His pistol was raised and pointed directly at me. The trees growing out of the hillside were far too small to hide behind. I could only hope demons weren't great shots and keep climbing. Isaac had gone a step further than hoping and had begun to beseech God for salvation. But as I resumed my climb, he followed suit. The next bullet stuck in a tree. The one after that exploded a rock between us. My hands were growing slick with sweat and I feared I wouldn't be able to maintain my grip much longer. Over here, Isaac shouted out of the blue. I shimmied over to him and saw what he had found. The narrow mouth of a small cave was yawning at us from a jagged outcrop. Isaac slid into it first. Normally I wouldn't blindly dive into a small enclosed space, but a bullet struck the dirt four inches from my right hand and gave me all the encouragement I needed. The cave's narrow mouth had been deceptive. When I slid through it, my feet dropped down far enough that when they finally hit the ground, I was able to stand upright. Isaac and I both stood beneath the opening for a minute and caught our breath. We should try to warn Red, Isaac finally suggested. He pulled out his phone, tapped the screen a few times, and held it up to his ear. I could hear it faintly ringing, and then Red's stale voice saying, You've reached Ridgefield Police Chief Red, and Isaac hung up. He'll call back when he sees you called, I hoped aloud. Isaac kept his phone in hand and turned on its flashlight feature. He shone it into the cave. It had a throat which descended at a sharp grade into the bowels of the hill. It wanted to swallow us, and I wanted to let it, purely for the sake of survival. Where do you think it lets out? He asked. I'm not sure, I said honestly, but wherever it is has to be safer than here. We might have escaped the bullets, but this cave won't stop that dog. Agreed, Isaac said, and slowly made his way toward the throat. Going down was much faster than coming up, but not necessarily easier. The stone esophagus had been smoothed by centuries of erosion. A glistening layer of moisture made its surface quite slick. 
Thankfully, there were a few stretches where the slick surface came in handy and we could simply slide down. Soon we were both down in the belly of the hill. I was surprised to see what looked like daylight up ahead and to hear dripping water. A way out? Isaac wondered aloud as he pointed towards the light. I smiled and gestured for him to lead the way. I felt like we had slid down a secret tube in Super Mario and bypassed the danger above. My relief had given birth to a fat, slimy confidence baby that I was about to learn couldn't survive the cold, dark world inside the hill. Isaac and I crept toward the light. I kept waiting to hear the black dog following us, but it left us alone. Speculating as to why the dog had given up so easily made me sweat. I couldn't help but wonder if it had left us to a worse fate. A wide turn lay just ahead. We could tell the light shining down and across the cave floor was spilling from a source around the bend. I'll go first, I told Isaac. He fell in line behind me, and we both hugged the icy wall as we slid around the curve. The dripping sounds were amplified the closer we got to the light. If we hadn't been underground, I might have thought it was raining up ahead. I took a few more steps before stopping abruptly in surprise. Up ahead was a splintered door, a crumbling brick facade, shattered windows, and the traumatized roof of the funeral home. Water was dripping down all around it from the edges of the sinkhole that had brought the building down into the cave. There were no lights on inside, obviously, but I was horrified to hear movement behind the walls. Do you think she's still alive? Isaac asked from behind me. Who? I asked. Bernice, the mortician. They said she was inside when the funeral home went. I suppose we have to check now, don't we? I replied bitterly. Judging by the orange halo glowing above the sunken funeral home, the sun was beginning its trip to the other side of the world. Nighttime was coming, and I wanted to escape the cave before it arrived. We'll be quick, Isaac said. Besides, I bet all those cops and firefighters are still standing around up there. We can shout for help if anything goes wrong. As long as they don't want to kill us, I said. Lead the way. Isaac approached the door confidently, but then seemed to shrink against the funeral home's hollow presence. He shone his light into the darkness inside, but it barely cut past the welcome mat, which lay askew and folded over itself. Heh. Hello? Isaac murmured into the darkness. We both jumped back when a metallic shriek rang out. It was followed by a loud echoing clank. Bernice? Isaac called, sounding stronger now. At least now he knew there was definitely someone inside. Maybe she's hurt and can't respond, I offered. We should hurry, Isaac replied. Follow me and stay close. I've been inside this building far too often. It's dark and crooked now, but I can still find my way around. The wet, uneven floor made our exploration precarious. It would have been quite easy to slip and twist or break an ankle. Isaac led me past the entryway into a sort of foyer where a coffin on rollers had smashed a hole the size of a truck tire in the drywall. The coffin itself now lay on its side with the bottom facing us. I involuntarily held my breath as Isaac approached the capsized corpse vessel. It's empty, he said. I felt a moment's relief before he uttered a dismayed, Oh. Oh, but it hasn't always been. 
Not now, Isaac. I really don't have the patience for jokes. Isaac turned to me, and the sunken corners of his mouth showed me he was most certainly not joking. Come see for yourself, he said. Those smears on the liner? That's foundation. Bernice puts it on bodies before a visitation to disguise their discoloration and make them more lifelike. But that's not actually the first thing I noticed. Look here. He pointed to a spot along the inside liner. There, easily seen in the flashlight's glow, was the imprint of a hand. Based on the size, it belonged to an adult man, not Bernice. All right, Pastor Think, who's died recently? Who should be in here? Well, there's Sam, obviously. Another scraping sort of sound echoed down the hall. Another clank punctuated it and chilled my blood. It wasn't Sam. Sam died too recently to have been all dolled up if that's even possible to do to a guy who burned to death, I whispered. Isaac and I were both staring down the hall where the sound had come from. I think we have to go down there, Isaac said shakily. No, we don't, I said. We can leave right now. If we climb up the building, I bet we can get outside and... You just want to abandon whoever's back there? Isaac asked. Before it was Bernice, now it's whoever? Isaac, if it's not Bernice, then it has to be... I was going to say a dead guy, but my tongue refused to even form those insane words. The very idea should have seemed ridiculous, but down there in that dark, damp funeral home, it seemed horribly possible especially having just been shot at by a dead cop. Just go, Isaac said. I have a duty to protect the people of this town against evil and evildoers. You've got nothing but a drunken pact to hold you accountable. Just go. We had made a pact, drunken or not, and I intended to uphold my end of the deal. I still thought the best option would be to leave the funeral home behind and get back to the surface but I gestured for Isaac to lead the way down the hall anyway. He drew a long, deep breath and stepped forward. There was another loud scrape and a slam this time. Now we could pinpoint the noises. They were coming from a pitch-black room at the end of the hall to the right. I wanted so badly to ask Isaac what was in that room, but I dared not speak. Even a whisper, I feared, could alert whoever or whatever was in that dark room to our approach. Isaac stopped when we reached the black doorway and I bumped into him. We were so close to each other, I could hear the whispers of his shirt rubbing against the wall as he shivered with fear. Someone was definitely moving around inside the room. They sounded slow and aimless, like an elephant in a zoo. Again, there came a scraping sound. This time, I could hear another sound beneath it. It sounded like small rocks tumbling down a hillside. The noises ceased momentarily, then repeated at double or triple speed and ended with a reverberating clank. Not rocks, I decided. Rollers. Wheels beneath a large drawer. Now it was my turn to shiver as I realized what kind of giant drawers could be found in a funeral home. Isaac put his hand over his light and slowly moved it into the doorway. Then, he carefully parted his fingers to allow a little light through. There were four of them, and three were naked. They all went still when the weak light brushed their skin. 
They were all colored by different shades of gray with dull blotches here and there. On the first woman, who I didn't recognize, purple spots were pooled around her eyes, mouth, and stomach. The next in line was also a woman. She was clothed and livelier looking besides a sort of yellow discoloration around her mouth. I assumed this was Bernice. The third was the friendly taxi driver who had brought me to Ridgeville, Bill. I nearly allowed a gasp to slip through my teeth when I saw him. He had a reddish patch around his chest and throat that looked like a cropped turtleneck. I bet you didn't know he was dead, did you? The voice of the fourth most horrifying body echoed my thoughts. I stumbled back against the opposite wall. I hadn't been able to tell whether this body had belonged to a man or woman until he spoke. His skin had flaked away from 90% of his body. His bones were like charcoal. His skull had one hollow socket and one with just a loose, withered eyeball. And his voice, the voice that had induced more fear than the body's appearance, belonged to the man I had shared a meal with one rainy day the man who had given me the cursed watch and kicked this whole thing off. The voice belonged to Sam. As Sam stepped forward, Isaac told me to run. At the sound of Isaac's voice, the other three bodies awoke. Their eyes flashed as I spun around to run back the way we had come. We ran out of the collapsed funeral home, around the cave bend, and up to the steep slope we had slid down to escape the dog. There's no way we can climb this, I said. I know, Isaac said. We looked at each other stupidly for a second, then I searched the cave around us. Finally, I said, turn off the light and get behind that rock. Let's just wait them out. I pointed to a boulder about five feet away. We made our way to it before Isaac shut off the flashlight. Maybe you should try the chief again, I whispered, while Isaac still had his phone out. I don't have a signal, he replied. Wait. I shushed Isaac and held my breath. I thought I had heard a commanding voice shouting in the distance. Then we both heard it. I couldn't make out what the man was saying, but he sounded scared. Then came the gunshots. Dozens of them. It sounded like a fireworks display popping off just above us. At first I was scared, then, as the last shots faded away, I allowed myself to hope. Had we just been rescued? We waited a few more minutes, but when the fresh silence lingered, we crept back into the open. Isaac didn't turn the flashlight back on, and I didn't ask him to. There was enough light coming in from the sinkhole to see where we were going without giving ourselves away. While we made our way back to the opening, I asked Isaac, Did you know those other dead people? Isaac cleared his throat and said, I recognized two of them. One was a woman from my congregation. She always came alone. Her husband, well, let's just say he could have used the Lord's light in his life. This isn't the time to be vague, Isaac. What did her husband do? He, ah, he was a drunk and a wife beater. She always wore long, loose clothes to hide the bruises. Apparently, he took the abuse all the way this time. But you didn't hear about her death, I asked. It must have been in the last day or so. I've been so caught up with the fire, and you don't have to make excuses, I understand. I'm just trying to put everything together. I knew the other man. His name was Bill. He was a taxi driver. Yeah, I know. He was the type you only see at church on holidays, but he was such a friendly guy. I couldn't have forgotten him. 
So you think he was also killed recently? I asked. Isaac shrugged. We had reached the funeral home again and stopped to listen for movement. The whole world felt dead. On my lead, we scaled the lopsided building, climbing the collapsed roof and reaching the precipice of the sinkhole. I pulled myself out and turned to grab Isaac's hand. The look I saw on his face paralyzed me. I had to read his lips. He made practically no sound as he mouthed, Don't move. I heard a creaky popping noise behind me. Now Isaac screamed, Duck! I dove to the side and rolled over to see a police officer with a hole in his chest pointing his service weapon where I had just been. I crab walked away from him and the hole and saw the rest of the emergency crew. Firefighters, waterworks, EMTs, and Bernice. All covered with copious amounts of blood. All with fatal injuries. And all with the same hateful energy filling their otherwise void eyes. The gun in the officer's hand went off. The bullet missed me by inches. Three other dead officers raised their guns in my direction. I curled into a ball, making myself as small as I possibly could. I didn't know what else to do. Stand down, a commanding voice shouted through the radios attached to every emergency worker. Half a dozen undead heads turned to look at their radios as if they had never seen them before. I repeat, stand down, the voice shouted again. This time I recognized it as Red's. The reanimated cop nearest me seemingly decided to ignore the strange talking object on his shoulder and trained his weapon on me once again. That's it, the radio crackled. I heard sirens wind up as an engine roared just out of sight to the west. The chief's car rushed into view going 70, maybe 80 miles per hour. He hit the waterworks crew first, sending them both flying over the car. Red's light bar was damaged, but he kept coming. He flattened one cop and sent a firefighter flying before striking another. One firefighter and two EMTs later, the cop with his gun trained on me was the only demon zombie left. It was too late. Red had cleared the rest of the danger, but that gun was aimed right at my head and I had zero defense. I could hear the souped-up roar of the chief's car barreling toward me in a futile attempt at rescue, but I knew he wouldn't make it. I chose not to look into my killer's eyes knowing I would not see a police officer, but a demon. Instead, I chose to look straight down the barrel of the gun, not giving Bielza whatever the satisfaction of seeing my fear. The cop was already squeezing the trigger when Isaac erupted from the sinkhole and grabbed his ankles. He went down hard. Red's squad car flattened his body a second later, spraying me with blood and little bits of soft, warm tissue. I didn't even notice. I had been expecting death and was simply stunned to still be breathing. Slowly, the veil that had descended upon the world around me lifted and I heard Isaac saying, no, shouting, my name, over and over and over. I wanted to throw up. But instead I laughed. I laughed so hard I fell onto my back. Isaac looked scared, rightfully so in hindsight, and that just made me laugh harder. I continued to laugh until the chief walked over, grabbed my collar, and smacked me across the face. Get up, he said. You're just dumping adrenaline. This is far from over. I collected myself and stood. The chief was looking out at the field of mangled bodies and muddy tracks. Tears filled his eyes as he growled, You wouldn't answer your damn phone. We tried to call, but we had no signal, Isaac said. We were 
It doesn't matter. We've already lost. What do you mean? I asked. Come with me, he said grimly. We loaded into his blood-spattered car. His wiper blades squeaked across the red-streaked windshield and got stuck halfway. With a grunt, Red sprayed wiper fluid on it and freed them. He had to repeat the spray wipe cycle four times before he could see clearly enough to drive. Even then, the sunset looked a little too red through the glass. Not that there was much of a sunset left to see. The sun looked like the tip of a fingernail slipping away between the hills. We were minutes from darkness when Red sped us back into town as if he was aggressively trying to capture that last bit of light. Red, there was a guy down there, a taxi driver named William Fetterman. Yeah, he was killed on the job last night. I just found out a couple of hours ago. He's a part of this now. Was there a woman killed too? Isaac asked. Not sure. She was from the city, I think. I didn't recognize her. You saw her? I asked. I hit her. And I think I stopped her. She almost got away with Bill. By then we had gotten downtown. The town felt lifeless. Not one person was outside or in the windows of any building we passed. The automatic street lamps supplied the only light as the sun made its final descent. Where is everyone? I asked. A lot of them are probably dead. Some of them have probably locked up and hidden themselves. The rest? They're probably going to bed with no idea what's going on outside. Chief, we don't even know what's going on. Are you going to fill us in anytime soon or just keep sightseeing? Red pulled over and killed his headlights. Then he unbuckled and turned in his seat to better face us both. My entire force has fled or been killed. Not that it was that big to start with. Were the rest... Did you have to... Isaac seemed to struggle with his question. Did I have to kill all my people? Is that what you're wondering? Red asked. Isaac nodded nervously. Most. Some still got away, though. Now, to be clear, they were dead before I had to put them down, like the ones who were just trying to kill you back there. I think their bodies are being used or controlled or... Possessed, Isaac said. Demonic possession of living people is a well-documented phenomena going back centuries, millennia even. However, I'm unaware of any incident where a demon took over a dead person. A whole gang of demons, I said. Well, not necessarily, Isaac replied thoughtfully. I'm wondering if this one, Beelzebub, who we already know has an unholy amount of power and a tendency towards breaking the rules, is able to control multiple human vessels at once if they're already dead. I'd assume it takes less focus and energy to power a corpse than to manipulate a living, willful person. Well, we can't exercise the whole town, can we? Red asked. No, not me anyway. What about the watch? I asked. It's how he got Sam and almost got me, right? If I had kept wearing it, it probably would have been me laying face down in that creek instead of the Worthing boy. It's not a genie, Isaac replied. Demons aren't confined to objects the way you see in movies. They can certainly utilize physical items to concentrate their power, which is what I'm guessing happened with the watch. You said bad things happened whenever you took the watch off, right? Yeah, that was the pattern. And what did you do about that? Well, before I brought it to you, I just started wearing it all the time. It seemed to keep the bad stuff at bay. And that's what it wanted. 
You started wearing the watch like Sam, and it convinced you to bring it to me. But Sam burned down the church, didn't he? How was he still possessed if he had given up the watch? That's what I'm saying, Patrick. The demon doesn't need the physical item, it's just... Think about a magnifying glass in the sun. It doesn't create sunlight, it just focuses it and makes it stronger, more dangerous. By bringing that watch to me, you essentially pointed the magnifying glass at the church. When Sam, under the demon's control, performed his ritual, all that evil energy had a perfect target. If you're right, shouldn't the watch have been inside the funeral home? Red asked. Going along your theory, that was little Wade Worthing's target. Probably. I bet if we had searched in there a little longer, we would have come across it, Isaac said. Somewhere up ahead, a woman screamed. Her cries pierced the quiet outside and echoed off the still buildings. Red pulled his seatbelt back into place and put the car in drive. He left his headlights off, though. We said nothing as we rushed from block to block searching for the woman who had screamed. He's spreading, Isaac muttered. Hey, Red, do you have a loudspeaker on this thing? Yeah, Red replied absently. All of his attention was on the windows. We need to get on it and warn everyone. Maybe we can still get the survivors out of here. Be my guest. Red detached a handheld microphone from his center console unit and handed it to me. Since Isaac was in the back seat, I couldn't pass it to him. I pressed a button on the side and heard the loudspeaker squawk above us. Everyone, get in your cars and get out of town. You are all in serious danger. Don't talk to anyone and leave now. There, Red shouted as he jerked the wheel to the left. He had seen a woman running for her life. He hit a switch and the world outside started flashing red and blue. The woman stopped running and a look of relief came over her. She waved us down as Red pulled up. Get in the back, he yelled through his closed window. The woman ran around the car and opened the back door. Come on, Isaac hurried her. She got one foot into the car before something grabbed her. She screamed bloody murder as she was dragged away from us, leaving the back door wide open. I heard a sick, wet crunch, and then the screaming stopped. Isaac shouted, Red, we gotta... He cut himself off with a choked shout as Bill, naked and bloodied, appeared next to the door. Help me, Isaac screamed as Bill tried to get inside the caged back seat. Isaac held him off with a couple of kicks, but it wasn't enough to keep the undead taxi driver out. Hang on, Red grunted. He threw the car into a reverse and floored it. Bill's feet went out from under him and his head splattered in the inside of the door. The car jolted as the front tire on Red's side bounced over Bill's body. Before Red could put the car back in drive, the other back door was opened from the outside. The screaming woman appeared again, with half of her skull bashed in. With inhuman strength, she pulled Isaac out of the car. Red and I got out simultaneously and rushed to his aid. The woman was already throttling him by the time I got my hands on her and tried to pull her away. Red went for her hands, struggling to open them so Isaac could breathe. His eyes were wide and reflected the flashing emergency lights as he stared at me, begging me to save him. I wrapped my own arm around the woman's throat and put all my weight into dragging her down. Red finally loosened a few of her fingers enough to get one hand off and she fell on top of me. Thankfully, Red thought quickly. He got behind the open car door and began bashing it against her. Three blows were enough to knock her off of me. Run, he shouted. Isaac had already taken off. 
I started to follow, but then I saw Bill's body. He was laying with one arm beneath himself and the other outstretched. On his wrist, I saw the watch. Go on, I'll catch up, I yelled. I crouched near Bill and started removing the watch. Then I heard Isaac and Red's footsteps stop. I looked up. The road was blocked by a wall of walking corpses. Sam was leading the pack. I recognized the waitress who had served Sam and I meatball subs among the dead, as well as others I had only met briefly during my time in Ridgeville. They were all walking towards us, closing in. I stood and Isaac and Red both turned to run the opposite direction, but that was also blocked by a stupefied crowd. This one was led by little Wade Worthing, number 17. The three of us huddled together, unsure of what to do next. You have witnessed the beginning, Sam said in a deep voice that rattled the windows around us. Give up now and I will spare you from having to witness the end. All right, Pastor, you're up, Red muttered. What do we do now? Isaac looked back at Red's car but Wade's group had already overtaken it. There were no doors on the sides of either building to our left and right. Here, I said, handing Isaac the watch. Can we use this? Sam saw this and laughed. Like a magnifying glass, Isaac mumbled. What? I shouted at him. It concentrates the power, sunlight, reflection, a mirror, We can turn his power against him if we can redirect it back, but we need something... Isaac spun around and reached for my neck. I shoved him away, assuming he had just been possessed. No, he shouted. Your your necklace. I need your crucifix. I didn't know what he was getting at, but I pulled my old necklace out from under my shirt. Isaac snatched it, pulling it hard enough to break the chain. He clutched the little cross and the watch together in one hand. Lord, hear my prayer, he said loudly. Show this demon your strength. Both approaching groups halted suddenly. Some of the bodies stopped in mid-step and toppled over. Others stood balanced for a moment before they too fell. Sam was the only one who remained standing. He seemed to grow. His physical stature remained static, but his presence increased, making it feel like he was looming over us. All of the demon's energy had filled his feeble body. Let your light overpower this darkness. Sam raised a hand and a glow emanated from Isaac's palm. Let your goodness overcome this evil. His prayer was punctuated by an anguished cry. His hand started to smoke. I clasped my own hands over his fist, keeping the watch firmly enclosed and pressed against the cross. The heat was nearly unbearable, even for me. I couldn't imagine the pain Isaac must have felt with the objects directly on his skin. Just when I thought I couldn't hold on any longer, Red clasped his hands over mine. You will all burn in hell, Sam growled. He dropped onto all fours and opened his mouth wide. Black hair sprouted from every pore on his body. A wiry tail grew behind him. Before our eyes, he transformed into the black dog. All of our hands burst into flames. Red fell away. I stumbled back. Isaac collapsed. His hand hit the ground and opened. The fire leapt out of his palm, flew through the air, and hit the dog squarely in the mouth. Immediately, the flames turned a blinding white. We all had to look away as the animal howled in pain. 
By the time its cries faded away, the fire flickered and vanished. Where the dog had stood, nothing remained but the tiny steel cross. Not even ash. Even the necklace's chain had been burned up. We sat in stunned silence for what might have been a minute, maybe five. Then Red laughed. The sound was so contagious I found myself joining in a moment later. Soon even Isaac was laughing with relief through tears of agony, but the laughter didn't last. At some indefinable moment, it turned to sobbing. We cried for ourselves, for our lost friends, and for all of Ridgeville. The final headcount found that out of Ridgeville's 300 or so residents, only two dozen survived, including Isaac Red and me. The other survivors had all locked themselves into their homes near the west end of town. Apparently, the demon scourge hadn't reached them yet when I had put out the message on the loudspeaker that had drawn them all back to us. Isaac lost his left hand to the burns. His right, along with my hands and Red's, recovered with time and critical treatment. There was a sweeping cover-up to ease the fears of those nearby and explain the deaths of so many people in a single night. The governor released a statement saying deadly chemicals from the funeral home had leaked into the water supply after the water main break had caused it to collapse. These chemicals were said to have been consumed by almost everyone in town, killing most of them. Those who know the truth have stayed quiet until now out of fear of being labeled a lunatic or having the authorities shut them up. I'll admit, I'm not sure what will happen to me once I publish this story. But the reality is, whatever happens won't be worse than what would have happened that night if we hadn't stopped it. Now I'm just trying to tell everyone I can to let them all know how we put an end to that evil. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening.